We've been talking about um, last few weeks. What does the God of the mountain have to say about life in the valley? Right, we're looking at Mark chapter 9. Jesus went up on this mountain and it's a very unique experience with him and two of his disciples where he started to, um, I don't know, it's hard to, dis- they don't, it's hard to describe because it was hard to describe. He was like glowing, um, transforming in a sense. His deity was like shining through his humanity. He's there with Peter and John. And if you recall, uh, on that mountain at that time, God said, this is my son, listen to him. <laughs> Which is precisely what Jackie just said, she does. She listens to Jesus. She also said she doesn't really understand the Bible. I, I will take understanding the Bible. I, I will take listening to Jesus over understanding the Bible every day of the week, seven days a week, 365 days a year. Listening to Jesus. It's an inspiring story, and it's one that just, it, it, it speaks to us, right? It says, you can be a part of God's kingdom no matter what. Jesus isn't hard to listen to. It's not hard to hear. Um, but sometimes it is hard to listen to him and do what he says. But stories like Jackie's, inspiring. Thank you, Jackie. And Amy. She, was, she has more energy than 10 people. So yeah, that's what happened. They were on the mountain. Jesus started glowing. Peter and John were there. Peter says, we should stay here. <laughs> yeah, you want to stay in these God moments, these mountain moments. And Jesus says, we got to go down. So they go down. When they get back down into the valley, they come to uh, all the other disciples of Jesus. There's a large crowd around them. And in addition to a crowd, there's an argument going on with the disciples and the teachers of the law. So what it says in Mark. When they came to the other disciples, they saw a large crowd around them and the teachers of the law arguing with them. As soon as all the people, the crowd of people saw Jesus, they were overwhelmed with wonder and ran to greet him. And he says, what are you arguing about? And then a man in the crowd answered. And he said, teacher, I, I, I brought you my son whom is possessed by a spirit. I, I just asked, I just, I'm paraphrasing here. I just asked your disciples to drive out the spirit, but they, they couldn't do it. I told you last week that um, this argument caught my attention and I wanted to return to it today. And we'll, we'll talk about it in, in even greater detail till next week. But this arguing here, um, I guess it bothers me a little bit. They're, they're, the disciples are arguing with uh, leaders and the servants of God, we call the Pharisees, and maybe that argument doesn't bother me as much as the fact that there seems to be arguing everywhere all the time. <laughs> it seems like it's just where we live. Everyone is just arguing, including me. So maybe I'm not so surprised that they're arguing, I'm just surprised that humanity has made such little progress on this at all. And Christians are no exception. And maybe it's just human to argue and we're always going to argue. It seems so. It's everywhere. I watched two guys argue on the way here this morning. 
One guy, they were both, both driving. One, guy's, one guy suggested it was OK for him to pull into the lane with the other guy. And the other guy signaled to him clearly that it was not OK for him to come into his lane. One of the exasperating things in most relationships, certainly uh, in our closest relationships, is this tendency not only to argue, but to argue about the same things over and over and over again. My wife consistently thinks she remembers things correctly, but she doesn't. I do. Certain personality types love to argue. It's not personal. It's just the way they learn. So they're always arguing. And just about everything that comes up in society today, everything that is uh, popular, everything that's being covered uh, on the news and through the communication channels tends to become divisive because that is financially rewarding for those that are perpetuating it. Those, that divisiveness always devolves into arguments. And as we've talked about recently, social media is an easy on-ramp for anyone to get involved in that argument. Not all arguing looks like arguing. There's arguing going on, and we don't even know it. Passive-aggressive arguing. Well, it goes like this. Well, that's certainly one point of view. No, no uh, scholars share your view, but you're entitled to your opinion. It doesn't seem like arguing, but your nose is bleeding after that comment. I listened to it. <laughs> this is a great line. I'm probably going to use it, even though it's... it's <laughs> Arrogant. Uh, this guy was asked to commentate on uh, an opposing view, and he said, Well, with all due respect, he's not burdened with an education in constitutional law. <laughs> he's not burdened <laughs> with an education in constitutional law. That's an argument right there. That's an argument. Obviously, fighting, physical fighting is an argument that's deteriorated to the point where you can no longer win this thing intellectually, so now you've got to win it with power of a different sort. Abandonment is, is an argument. It's telling somebody something. Someone pointed to me years and years ago that even on a subconscious level, the act of locking your car door is a preemptive attack. It says, hey, back off. This is my stuff. We just go, kick, kick. that's it. It just doesn't seem like anything. But everybody with an earshot essentially is like, don't go. You know, I'm not allowed in there. The person's going to argue with me. We lock the doors of our house. And we put up a sign that says there's a dog here which means the argument's going to get worse if you go through the locked door. You can probably think of all sorts of creative ways to resist um, another person and the ways that we do it. We need, to, we need to do something about all the arguing. We really do. That's a softball set up for somebody. We really need to do something about the arguing. No, we don't. Yes, we do. That's my, that's my wife. Way to go, honey. Way to pick up on that. <laughs> it might help to start with why we argue. Why do we argue? 
And then we should spend a little time exploring how Christians can engage in this argumentative, divisive culture that we live in, in a way that's honoring to God. I will suggest that there is one primary reason that we argue, and I'll get to that, but I want to cover a couple of these other questions first. Uh, what are some things that might cause arguments? What are some things that make us susceptible to arguments? What is the primary negative impact of most arguments? Uh, let me give you some, and, and this is, these are not exhaustive, it just, I just want to get your, you know, prime the pump here for you. So what are some things that can cause or seem to cause arguments? I think there's only one, but these seems, would seem to cause it. Uh, truth. Some of us put a high value on truth, and we take on the responsibility of defending it. It can be a spiritual, biblical truth. Uh, does hell exist? Pick anything. You, you, you're going to have a view. Somebody else is going to have a view. It's, it's, it's very possible that, and, and it, it feels like you should, be, you should defend the truth. It could be social. It could be about abortion. It could be about gender. It could be political. Is this a war? Is this war just? What about trickle-down economics? Uh, it could be medical. Is vaccinating right or wrong? Right? There are so many issues where you, me, others, understand what we believe to be the truth, and we feel irresponsible if we don't defend the truth. A subset of truth is uh, accuracy. Like, some people are very committed to accuracy. Someone could be going on about, like, yeah, and then we arrived at 2 o'clock for this wonderful event, and someone might say it was 2.05. <laughs> They're not trying to cause an argument, but it just wasn't accurate. We tend to allow truth and accuracy to be, or, or it would seem that those are the causes. Love. We, we argue sometimes from what we think would be a, a loving reason. Like the consequences of a loved one that's living according to uh, a, a false or a wrong worldview. And so we try to correct them. Do you know what I'm saying? Someone, someone has chosen a particular route in life, and we see or know the damage or the deterioration that's going to come as a result of that. And because we love them, we will argue with them about their lifestyle or whatever. There's other things um, that make us susceptible to arguing. Fatigue. I have a friend just this week said, there are two kinds of people, uh, those who are exhausted and those who are employed, unemployed. Those who are exhausted and those who are unemployed. And my view is those that are unemployed are exhausted. So there's really only one kind of person right now. They're exhausted. We're all, we're all tired on some level. You might not be exhausted, but no one's at the top of their game. And it takes a lot of energy not to devolve into arguing. It takes a lot of energy to patiently work through a disagreement or an education process. I was reading a book about this divisive culture that we live in, and the guy's, one of his opening lines is, I decided to write this book because I'm tired. This is a little different fatigue. He's tired of all the taking of sides, right? But we're, we're tired, and the fact that we're tired causes us to just deteriorate into fighting. 
Another thing that makes us susceptible to arguing is just urgency. Like, it seems like the world's about ready to come apart. We think we know why it's coming apart. It's going to get worse. If somebody doesn't do something, somebody's going to get hurt. So there's no time for decorum, maybe even facts. Uh, certainly not the time for building trust in a relationship. And we just, just argue. And then one more thing before we get to the, what I think is the real reason at the root of most arguments is this primary negative impact of arguing. It obstructs you. It obstructs, it derails you from your purpose and your objective. Someone, not even necessarily on purpose, is blocking you. They may disagree with your intentions. They may see a flaw in your plan or your design. They be, may be personally impacted in a negative way. So you're blocked by the argument. When we engage into the arguing, then we are a party to blocking our own objective. For the Christian, oftentimes, our arguing has a negative effect on the mission of God. On, on the central Christian purpose, arguing can just take us out of the game. To, to reach the lost for the sake of the gospel goes into park. Andy Stanley uh, says, the moment we step into a ring that requires someone to lose in order for us to win, we're no longer followers of Jesus. So look what's going on when they come down from the mountain. They're at the center, the disciples are at the center of this large crowd. All these disciples are there, they're arguing. Um, and before he can ask what's going on, the crowd is struck by Jesus' presence. And I don't, we don't know exactly why that is, but he was just being transfigured. He had just met from God. God had reaffirmed him once again. He had this moment with God. So he's coming off the mountain. He, maybe he's still glowing a little bit. I don't know. But they noticed him and they ran to him. Which it's interesting to notice that although this crowd was entertained on some level by the arguing, right? They're there. They aren't really invested. They're not really... Um, and maybe they're not even all that into it. It's just what's happening. It just, it just caught their attention, but they're not invested in it because they notice Jesus arrived before the disciples even do. This is something to be said there, right? These, these God-fearing people, both the disciples and the Pharisees, are at it. The people that they're all trying to reach are can, kind of watching that Instead of, <laughs> they're arguing instead of leading them to Christ. The very people Jesus has sent them to, the very people that they are to be demonstrating the compassion of God, the very people that are to be introducing, uh, they're to be introducing to Jesus, are, are at least for the moment distracted at how poorly they're getting along with one another. 
Adam Ward, a friend of mine, is a ministry leader here in Columbus, is working closely with Barna Research, and, and they have reasserted what's been clear for years, that the number one thing, the number one thing that causes those who we would hope to reach for Christ to instead steer clear of us is that Christians don't get along or they, or they can't even do things together. They're all separately doing their own things. And they're disinterested in getting in the middle of our petty, at least as they see it, differences. It's probably worth noting that although it's our privilege to be witnesses for Christ, to be ambassadors for Christ, that is, if you're a Christian, that we aren't necessarily needed. We've been invited in by God, by Jesus himself, to be a part of his ministry, to lead out in the power of the Spirit in continuing the things of Christ. But if we get tied up in something else, he can handle it without us. Right? Jesus showed up and the whole crowd just comes right over to him. He's not, he doesn't really need us. But it's a privilege to be involved. That's how it's designed to be. Where we're supposed to be with him, leading others to him. But if we're caught up in arguing, it's our loss. It's our loss. We're, we're no longer in the mission. And that mission is stalled. At least the parts that we're supposed to be doing. All right, so here's, here's the... Here's the reason we argue. You probably know what it is. It's pride. It's self. It's a lack of identity. The man with the sick son answers Jesus. He says, I asked your disciples to drive out the spirit, but they couldn't do it. <laughs> they couldn't do it. I don't know when the crowd arrived, but I'm guessing at least some of that crowd was there. And you know what that feels like. I got this. Watch, watch, power of God. Nothing. Now what? Now I look like an idiot. Now I just look stupid. And the Pharisees jump on that. I don't know who knows how exactly they did it. But the Pharisees are also self-interested. They, they would have been blaming either the sick person or the sick person's parents for the sin in their life. And the answer to that would be, listen to us. We know what's going on. We are the example of godliness. Live like we say to live. Do what we say, and you'll be better. Everybody's, they're arguing and they're all concerned about themselves. We have a little bit more clue about the disciples' posture here. Just not much longer, just a few verses later in Mark chapter 9. They were walking to another city. And um, Jesus is telling them, or trying to tell them about the facts that he's going to be crucified. But it says here, they did not understand what he meant, and they were afraid to ask him about it. Afraid to ask Jesus. Afraid to say, we don't understand what you're talking about. 
When they finally got to where they were going and they were in the house, Jesus said, hey, what were you guys uh, arguing about on the road back there? But they kept quiet. They didn't say because the way they had argued or what they were arguing about was who among them was the greatest. <laughs> hey, what were you talking about back there? If you're a parent, you've asked that question uh, and you already know the answer. Hey, what was going on in there? Hey, what were you doing in there? What were you talking about in there? They didn't answer. The disciples argue for the same reason anyone argues. They're suffering from an identity crisis, at least in modern psychological speak. The Bible calls it pride. Listen, they've been with Jesus for quite some time now, and they're struggling to heal other people. They're struggling to exist the very power that Jesus assures them that they have. Two of them were selected to go up on the mountain. Everybody else was excluded. This great God thing on the mountain, there's only two tickets. When Jesus forecasts his own fate, they can't understand it. And finally, he catches them in what they thought was a private conversation in a discussion, and they're embarrassed to admit they were debating who's the greatest. The disciples are desperate to be something and to do something great. Certainly for God's glory, but with no evidence about greatness forthcoming, they're left to prove it on their own. And that's us. If you're not rock-solidly clear on who you are in Christ, who you are in God's eyes, if your identity doesn't rest singularly and solely on God's declaration, if the gospel isn't at the core of your identity, you will be trying every which way to prove it, who you are, that you're valuable, purposeful, meaningful, on your own. If your identity isn't unquestionably settled, you will perpetually get into arguments, join ranks with a winning team, associate with a popular cause. Life will be an endless effort to prove yourself to yourself and to others, to prove your standing, your value, your identity. It'll, it'll become and is a neurosis. the efforts and the energy necessary to prove ourselves becomes neurotic. Listen to this guy, pretty smart guy. He's a psychologist from Harvard. <clears throat> he says, any neurotic is living a life which in some respects is extreme and it's self-centeredness. The region of his misery represents a complete preoccupation with himself. The very nature of the neurotic disorder is tied to pride. If the sufferer is hypersensitive, resentful, he may be indicating a fear that he will not appear to be an advantage in competitive situations where he wants to show his worth. If he is chronically indecisive, 
He is showing fear that he may do the wrong thing and be discredited. If he is overscrupulous and self-critical, he may be endeavoring to show how praiseworthy he really is. Thus, most neuroses are, from the point of view of religion, mixed with the sin of pride. A scholar on C.S. Lewis says the widespread chronic, I think he's kind of capturing some of C.S. Lewis's thought here, the widespread chronic preoccupation with self, and he updates it, in American culture, for example, is rooted in pride and can give rise to our, intensify our emotional problems. Yes. C.S. Lewis himself says pride's a spiritual cancer. It eats up the very possibility of love, or contentment, or even common sense. Both the disciples and the Pharisees are making a spectacle of themselves, arguing at the center of the crowd, were undoubtedly defending their shortcomings, explaining their failure, jockeying for position. And we see this throughout the Bible, the outworking of pride, the outworking of unbelief in what God says about those in Christ. We see it in the affairs of the Bible of individuals, families, nations, cultures, the, the whole gamut. We see people losing or suppressing the knowledge of God. When they do that, spiritual darkness grows. And then a psychological inversion occurs and their thinking becomes uh, of God becomes smaller and their thinking of themselves becomes bigger. Their center of gravity shifts from God to themselves. Self-importance and godless, godless self-confidence grow stronger. The cycle that follows that is familiar and repeated throughout the Bible. People exalt themselves against God and over others, right? That's, that's arguing with God and others. Pride increases. Arrogant, abusive behavior ensues. Conflict becomes unavoidable. People suffer. Apart from Christ, arguing is always about self. Apart from Christ, arguing is always about self. It's always about self-promotion. It's always about self-defense. Apart from Christ, it's not really about truth. We say that it's about truth. We're, we're just arguing for truth. It's actually about winning. It's actually about being right. It's about looking good in other people's eyes. Apart from Christ. I did a 30-day experiment four or five years ago. Um, I'm trying to, how to, I don't know how to set this up. <clears throat> I mostly add value to conversations with um, my thinking. <laughs> they love me for my brain. I have an intuition about strategic problems. <laughs> but, <clears throat> and I've come to this conclusion just numerous times, numerous times in my life. I talk too much. I tend to talk too much. And I decided for 30 days, I'm not going to offer, I'll engage in dialogue, but I'm not going to offer my own solutions or ideas unless somebody asks. Here's what happened. 
I can remember three distinct conversations around the table, think tanks about solving certain problems. And as is often the case, I quickly was able to assimilate the information and concoct a solution that would probably be pretty good. But I decided to wait till anybody asked. And we had this long conversation. And guess what happened? The group came to the same conclusion. Okay, that's rewarding for me. I got it. <clears throat> but they came to the same conclusion. I wasn't necessary at all. <laughs> After the third go-around, I was like, wow. <laughs> I had no idea how much self-praise I, I don't know. I, I had no idea how much I w got my identity from being the smart guy in the room. Like you would think the goal would be to arrive at the best solution, but apparently my goal was to provide the best solution. This is what we do apart from Christ. It's not about the truth. It's not about the idea. It's about being the one. And it's not about love apart from Christ. You understand what I'm saying? In Christ, we can talk about the truth and we can be loving. Apart from Christ, our, our sort of a smokescreen that we're arguing because of a truth issue or a love issue. But when apart from Christ, it's not love, it's fear of, of experiencing your own pain. Right? I talked about the, 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 the child or the friend walking along this life in the wrong worldview. And because we love them, we want to tell them the truth. We want to help them. But in fact, apart from Christ, we just don't want the pain of that. We don't want the trouble of it. That's the reason. We tend to say that it's about truth. Francis Schaeffer says, biblical orthodoxy without compassion is surely the ugliest thing in the world. Another doctor who probably knows what he's talking about says, the cause of arguments and fights is a lack of mutual empathic understanding. When empathy is not engaged, the people revert to self-protective mode and become judgmental. The result's a bad feeling on both sides. No happy end. James Disciple Jesus says, each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desire. Then desire, when it has conceived birth to sin, gives birth to sin. And then sin, when it's fully grown, brings forth death. Death meaning the opposite of life with God and others. That results in one big argument with your creator and others. All right. So what's the solution? Well, it's 11 o'clock. So, and I knew it. I knew this was coming. I just want to say that, like, because I want to be rewarded per, for just looking ahead like I don't normally do, apparently. I don't know why I said that. I know why I said that, because I'm a sinner, just like everyone else. Okay. <clears throat> uh, the solution, the alternative are going to come next week, but I'll, let, I'll give you sort of the big picture, and then we'll, we'll, call, it, we'll call it here. Okay? Here's the solution. Mark 9, 19. Jesus says, bring the boy to me. The sick person, it's at the center of the sick person sitting, on the, sitting there while they're arguing. He's having a convulsion right there. The brokenhearted parents are, are right there. And they're just arguing about who knows what. And Jesus says, bring the boy to me. Part of the solution, part of what it looks like, to engage as a Christian in this divisive world 
what it looks like to have your identity settled and to be engaged is that in whatever difficult situation, whatever conflict, whatever discord is to get Jesus into it. That's our goal. Get the gospel into the center of everything. He says, bring the boy to me. This is the part you missed, disciples. You need me. I'm trying to tell you that. I am the way. I am the truth. I am the life. The way Christians engage the world is that they are facilitators of bringing Jesus to the center of it, starting first with ourselves. We need the gospel more deeply rooted in our own heart. We, I've said this, we have got to have our own identity straightened out or please, as a Christian, don't get involved. You're giving Christianity a bad name if you don't have your identity secure and you're trying to get it as a part of that argument, they're just going to be seen as a hypocrite because you are. And then the world says what about the rest of Christianity? <laughs> they're all hypocrites. You are the representative of Jesus. If you don't have the gospel center in, you know, deeply within your own core, you know who you are in him. You don't have to get it some other way. That's incredible. Bring yourself to Jesus. And then secondly, let the gospel be the point, the aim, the objective of your engagement, of our engagement. For the Christian, the truth is in the tension. So Ecclesiastes says, right? It's the opposite of the world right now. Ecclesiastes, Ecclesiastes says what? The wise man holds on to the one without letting go of the other. It's the opposite of today's world. Take a side. The Christian enters in not to win, not to maximize their own life, not to prove themselves, but in some cases, figuratively, to die in that gap to your own stuff so that something can be resolved between someone else. That's what Jesus did with his whole life for humanity. He didn't die for just the good side. He died for everybody. He died for those that were with him and for those that were opposed to him. He died in the gap to bring resolution to humanity with God. The Christian doesn't engage this world, doesn't engage argument, doesn't engage conflict in order to win, but to die so that there might be resolution in someone else's life. We got to bring Jesus to the center. <laughs> I read Peggy Noonan. I think she's like a thousand years old. I've been, she's been uh, writing political commentary for like, as long as I can remember. <clears throat> and she says, the lesson of this political moment is don't be radical. Don't be extreme. Our country is a tea kettle on high flame at full boil. Whenever possible, let the steam out. Be part of a steady steam release before the kettle blows. <clears throat> That's good. Non-spiritual, wise counsel. But it's pretty close to what the Christian is called to do. We have an unprecedented lifetime opportunity in our present culture. As much as we might be 
fill in your own expletive or superlative for how you view this divisive culture. But for the Christian, it's a huge opportunity to bring the gospel to bear first in our own life, the way we engage. And then to see something happening for good in our world. I pulled this quote and I remember, I don't remember whose it was. It might be, it sounds like Tim Keller. Christians have a compelling reason to be remarkably gracious, inviting and endearing toward others, including and especially those who disagree with us. Are we known by what we are for instead of what we are against? Are we less concerned about defending our rights? Jesus laid down his rights and more concerned about joining Jesus in his mission of loving people, places, and things. When the grace of Jesus sinks in, we will be among the least offended and most loving people in the world. And, and I'm excited to be a part of this with you. I, I know I'm not, I'm not, I'm preaching to the choir here for the most part. Like, you get this. I know it, it's just a good reminder, isn't it? You get this, you're doing it, and I'm excited to do it with you. Just keep, just keep going. It's, it's worth it. The, the, the results are not as quick as what we're used to in this world. We get quick results all the time. The work of God moves at the same pace it has always moved in people. Sometimes it takes a lifetime for someone to see. So stay with it. Stay with it. You're doing great. Be reminded of these things. Continue to find your identity in him. And make Jesus the center of the objective of engaging life. God, it's our very simple prayer to be used by you well in this world. Help us first to trust you. And then God, give us the courage to engage in a meaningful, eternal way. Amen.